Bart Watson returns to break down the cost pressures facing craft brewers entering 2022 on this week's Brewbound podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Brewbound Podcast. My name is Justin Kendall and I am the editor of Brewbound and I am joined by Brewbound Managing Editor, Jess Infante. Hello, Jess. Hi, Justin. How are you? Uh, you know, Bones Day. Good, good. And I'm also joined by Brewbound reporter, Zoe Licata. How are you doing, Zoe? I'm doing swell. It's great to be back here with both of you. And this week, we've got a big guest. We've got Brewers Association Chief Economist Bart Watson here to discuss all the uh, PPI and CPI you'd ever want to talk about. Don't you want to talk about that, Jess? I do. I do want to talk about all of that. I attempted to talk about all of that over dinner last night, and my husband was like, please, no more work. (laughs) So that's why I have you guys, though. Yes, exactly. And and multiple other people on Twitter and other spaces that uh, you can talk to about these things. But let's get into the week in beer as it was, or the last week and a half or so of beer news. And let's just start with Molson Coors and Coca-Cola. We talked about it, I believe, last week when Constellation announced they were going to do a mixed fresco with Coca-Cola. And Molson Coors was like, hold up, you know, we've got something else coming. And here it is. Simply spiked lemonade. Yeah, it's a a sugar brew based on Coca-Cola's Simply Juice line. You know, the the bottles that come with the dark green cap. And all of these are lemonades, 5% alcohol, 170 calories. You know, when I think about this brand, I think about my late grandma Lincoln's refrigerator. And she always had... I think it was Simply Orange Juice, but she had the Simply products. She may have had the lemonade too, but I don't know why I think of grandma's, but this isn't exactly the brand that I was like, oh yeah, if we're going to do another Coca-Cola brand, this is the one that, you know, we're going to roll with. With Fresca, they, they at least were like, this is a mixer, you know? Totally. Is this a big mixer? Am I Am I lost here? I don't think specifically Simply is. I think it's just as much is as any other fruit juice type thing. I don't know of any like at-home cocktail mix that requires a Simply juice. So, I mean, this is a product that is on the way. How soon are we going to see this out, Jess? I believe they said this summer. This summer. Okay. Summer drink. Yeah, it'll be um, 12-ounce cans in variety packs. They're all based on, on lemonade. So... You know, it's like it's a hard lemonade, but based on cane sugar instead of being a flavored malt beverage. So it's an innovation, uh, but it's not too different from stuff we, you know, we already know. But yeah, you were right. It was funny how how Molson Coors after the Fresca news broke, they were like, don't you worry, Coke's, Coke's still our girl. We're still cool here. Yeah. And here we are. Also in the news and all over your Twitter feeds, I'm sure, is the BBC expose on brew dogs, should we call it uh, alleged toxicity? Yeah, you know, this this BBC uh, disclosure documentary, I assume had been in the works for a long time. And BBC reporter Mark Daly really dug into a lot of stuff. Um, I watched the whole thing. I feel like I've watched it now multiple times on, on replays. Who wouldn't want to watch that multiple times? I mean, (laughs) 
based on last night's inner conversation, my husband. Was it the <laughs> appointment viewing that the BBC sort of teased that it would be? Did you think it was? I think so. Yeah. And they've been like, you know, dropping little breadcrumbs from this for a couple weeks to months now. And I think it lived up to the hype. Um, you know, what we knew from last week was that allegedly BrewDog uh, employees in the UK had felt pressure to provide not entirely correct information to import partners in the US in order to speed up the approval of some beers. They didn't really share what was fully in uh, the recipes of a couple of beers. So we reported on that. And that seemed to be one of the big things to come out of this doc, but there was a lot more, you know, like the first, like I would say two thirds to three quarters of it really kind of focused on, on things like that, like the labeling incident, but then just like calling out the discrepancies between BrewDog always touting how punk they are and then doing things like accepting a lot of private equity. Uh, they talked a little bit about their equity for punks crowd raising campaign and how you know, there's different types of shares and the regular people that have thrown in money to be part of this company have a, a share that's not as prioritized as highly as TSG partners. I am shocked by that news. Wow. Well, <laughs> I hope you have your fainting couch nearby. I, I know. I, I need to get my old <laughs> fainting couch. So somebody get the smelling salts for me here. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, your, your your punk cred goes out the door a little bit when you you've got that type of partnership already. Totally. Yeah. And that was like the first big chunk of it. But the second, like the latter part was really where uh, I think some new information started to surface. And they had talked to uh, a lot of former US employees who have worked at uh, several different BrewDog properties over here. And these employees alleged that co-founder and CEO James Watt behaved somewhat inappropriately with women on staff at the bars and guests. And just uh, a lot of that, I don't really think we had seen put on the record until now. A lot of people coming forward. Mm, a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of people like show like visibly on camera with like their whole name and their face. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. And, and when I was talking about BrewDog's punk street cred, I, I was, of course, joking because that is the least least important part of this story or of any story. And you are just hitting on, you know, the exact reason why this was the appointment viewing that it was, was, you know, these people that have put their name behind this, these women who have stepped forward and come out and said, you know, this is what happened. This is what I was told, you know, and this is how, how the environment was. Yeah. There was one woman who, you know, she was a, a manager uh, at one of the tap rooms in the Midwest and on like a manager's meeting ahead of, you know, James's first time visiting the place since she'd been working there. Somebody said to her, Hey, you're James's type. So don't be alone in a room with him. That sucks. You know, I'm sure it sucks to hear that. Like, Hey, like the most important person in our company is coming and you should just protect yourself. Yeah. And some of the fallout from this, you reported on in your story that, Manchester's Cloudwater Brewing said that it has begun the process of winding down its production contract with BrewDog for producing beer for Tesco grocery stores. And also uh, Ascension Cider uh, said that they have asked that their cider immediately cease being sold to Hawk's Taproom or any BrewDog-owned bars. So some of the fallout already being felt there, but there's also the fallout on the other end, which is James Watt threatening to sue the BBC. 
Yeah, and in a tweet, James said that the BBC published claims which are totally false and they published them despite the extensive evidence we provided to demonstrate that they were false. Reluctantly, I am now forced to take legal action against the BBC to protect my reputation. And and obviously, you know, we have two different systems of, you know, sets of libel laws here versus there. So, and I would never pretend to be any kind of an expert about how that works in the UK because I don't know. But yeah, James said that yesterday. He had also taken to a couple online forums asking people, you know, ahead of the airing of the documentary, like, hey, it's not too late. If you participated and you don't want to, you can back out. And told some people that like they might not be promised, if they were promised anonymity, they might always not always get it. So that all happened before it aired. And then it aired. And yeah, now he's saying he's going to take legal action against the BBC. It's interesting that he said that despite the evidence that they have provided to BBC, but he also refused to be interviewed by BBC. So I want to know like how much information they actually gave to them. There you go, Zoe. Great point. He declined to participate. You also got a statement from BrewDog chairman Alan Layton. And part of that statement was that they were encouraging folks to reach out to their HR team and use their independent ethics hotline so they can listen and act. Yeah. The rest of that statement does not sound like they're going to act on on James. Uh, you know, it says he's committed to making improvements to his management style and he will continue that develop under my mentorship. And I think even James had a statement too saying that, you know, in regard to some of those accusations about his behavior toward female staff members, uh, he said he hugely regret anyone feeling in any way uncomfortable around me as the program set out. This is absolutely the last thing I want and something I will learn from immediately. I think the, the statement before that was that, you know, sometimes he dates when he's in America and he fully accept, I fully accept I have taken friends, colleagues, and yes, dates on tours of the brewery. I do not consider this inappropriate. Yeah, I mean, I asked, like, what are these steps that James is taking to develop his leadership style? And they did not answer anything in specific. Because, you know, like sometimes people will tell you, oh, like, you know, we have a, a leadership coach or management classes or whatever. But but they wouldn't give me anything along those lines. And, and it was funny because at some points, the concept of like James taking women up to like rooftop bars at these tap rooms came up several times in the BBC. And one of the statements that he provided to the BBC that they cited was that he had never once been on the roof. Then a bunch of people in the documentary were like, no, nah, like we saw him and we saw him on, you know, like the security camera. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. We'll just kind of leave this here and move on to Jess's story on the Beverage Bites survey by Goldman Sachs. So I could do this real quick. C-store retailers are predicting 10% growth for hard seltzer in 2022. Uh, 71% of them say a shakeout is coming or is already underway in the hard seltzer segment. So we will see what happens. And then Zoe, you pointed out a tweet with our featured guest here. What what did we learn from Bart that we aren't going to learn in this interview? (laughs) Yeah. So during our discussion with Bart for this podcast, he had brought up, we had talked about the new permit numbers from the TTB and he said he hadn't got an update yet. But today he just tweeted out that the TTB has posted their final permit information for 2021. And it showed that brewer permits have grown. Um, they grew more than 13,000 permits for this year, um, but that is the slowest absolute growth since 2013. So there weren't as many new permits growth-wise as there has been in the past. 
a little bit lower than 2020 even that had 948. Yeah, we used to be able to count on at least a thousand new breweries a year. And you can see it in the chart in 2017, it was 1,673 new breweries. In 2018, it was 1,252. In 2019, it was 1,469. Then it's down to 948 in 2020 and 848 last year. So that's the growth in TTB brewer permits by year. Another sign that the business is slowing down a little bit from those peak years. Yeah, it's interesting to me that we have like a little every other year pattern. And then obviously things (laughs) happened since 2020 that made that, you know, made the pattern not continue. Yeah. Well, that's enough of us. Let's get to Bart. So stick around for our featured interview with Bart Watson. All right, let's bring on our featured guest, Brewers Association Chief Economist, Bart Watson. Bart, you're one of the best Twitter follows out there. If you're not following Bart, you need to follow him at Brewers Stats. Earlier this month, you shared the producer price index for beer inputs, and that includes barley, paperboard, aluminum cans, and freight. And you compared that to the beer consumer price index. And the PPI line, it curved straight up while the CPI line was just a flat line almost. And Austin Beer Works did the translation work for us. Uh, They said the cost of making beer has increased much more quickly than the cost to buy beer, which is unsustainable for breweries wanting to stay in business. You wrote that something has to give. So what is that something? Yeah, and I don't know what that something is, but the, the two possibilities are brewery margins, you know, have to give in terms of getting destroyed as costs increase uh, on their input side and they don't make more money selling beer uh, or prices have to increase to consumers. Um, and I think we're going to see different breweries take different approaches with that this year. But um, I do think there's the distinct possibility we're going to see sharper than you know typical in recent year price increases in the coming months as breweries look to defray some of those input costs that they're seeing. So of those input costs, which have spiked the most? In that index, you know, barley, uh, which brewers don't buy barley directly. And I should say, you know, that, that PPI wasn't weighted to the percentages of each that, that brewers have, you know, which is kind of a rough average of, of four components that the breweries are going to see in their supply chain. So, you know, not as scientific as it could be, but barley was actually the highest. Um, I think we're going to start seeing that translate into malt price increases in, in the coming year. And uh, for those who, who don't follow the, the harvest forecast, you know, a lot of that's related to the fact that we had, you know, really tough crops in both the U.S. and in Canada um, this year, real hot, dry summers. And so yields were down about a third um, in both countries. But we saw price increases across the board. And, you know, depending on what brewery you talk to and what their cost structure looks like, you know, cans or other packaging, paperboard. Um, I didn't put labor in there, but, you know, labor costs are, are certainly rising for a lot of businesses. You know, all of those are, are points of pressure at the brewery right now because, you know, you're seeing costs increase everywhere. Is there going to be any relief on the way for those? You know, we'll see. I mean, some of them, you know, certainly the demand side hasn't changed and the supply side is catching up. So aluminum cans are a good example where, you know, prices went up, you know, Bluebound reported on this with fall increasing their price structure. Hopefully, as we see more supply come online, that market will equilibrate a little bit more and, and maybe prices will come back down as, as there's more supply out there. Trucking is another example. You know, general freight trucking is up sharply. You know, this is a situation where prices are going to rise when we just don't have enough trucks and truck drivers on the road. And if that balance can flip, which it can, you know, 
fairly quickly over time. Um, you could see those prices come back down. Unfortunately, I don't think there's a lot of relief in the short term. That a lot of these things, if you look at kind of why they've gone up, you know, th- there really isn't relief in the next six months. So, you know, this may just be a year where those input costs are a lot higher for a lot of breweries, unless they're lucky enough to be on a longer term contract or if, you know, secure supply. So, Bart, we've heard you and other beer economists say that beer is recession resilient, meaning that people will still splurge on it even when economic conditions aren't great. Do you think that gives us any indication of how consumers might respond to price increases in beer? Yeah, well, you know, the thing we're going to learn a lot about this year, at least in relation to a lot of craft brands, is, you know, price elasticity. You know, how much, if a price goes up, how many consumers are going to look to, to buy something that was back at the original price versus follow a brand up in price? And we don't know that. And it's going to be different for every brand and for every consumer. But that's the thing we're really going to have to watch. Are total beer volumes going to change that much? I doubt it. Will beer volumes change for brands that have to take price up more? Maybe. And that's really what brewers are weighing when they think about this is I can stay at my price and you know make less money or, or no money or lose money selling beer, or I can take my price up and hopefully most consumers will follow me there, but some might not. And that's the equation that, that brewers are really juggling right now. And it's not going to be easy. And they're all going to have to decide, you know, kind of different levels that they're comfortable taking up or, or not taking up. I mean, we've heard from a lot of publicly traded companies that, you know, Boston Beer, AB, Molson Coors, all talking about taking price. And I mean, the the New York Times had a story over the weekend about price increases, one that was kind of ridiculous. That was like, somebody was talking about the price of their Chipotle burrito going up and it was like 60 cents. And, and so while we talk about price increases, they could come in ways that, you know, don't exactly look like a big harm to breweries or their relationship with the customer, I, I would think. Yeah, you know, and again, this will depend by by customer and brand. You know, in general, craft demographics are you know a little bit higher socioeconomic status, probably willing to accept price increases a little bit more. And I think in general, right now, the consumer is primed for price increases. This isn't just happening in beer; it's happening in lots of areas. And so, you know, this may be one of those moments where um, you, as a company, can get away with a little bit more than you could traditionally, because a lot of people are talking about it. Generally, the general price environment, not just within beer, is is one that's increasing. But you know, at the same time, consumers only have so much money in their pocket. You know, if price is increasing everywhere, you know, people are on on fixed budgets, and you know, things are going to give and. And maybe that's not in the, oh, we'll pay 60 cents you know, more for this. But then when I look at the budget at the end of the month, I don't have money for as much beer next month. So you know, I, I think we have to be sensitive to not all consumers can just you know, eat price increases everywhere um, in their daily budget. And you know, different people are in different economic situations. So I do think this has the potential to have an effect on some brands. Um, and we'll see how much you know, people are able to follow brands versus you know, they look to, to trade down or, or find brands that aren't increasing price. Craft beer drinkers typically, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but tend to be a little bit more affluent and have disposable income to spend on beer. And they obviously, you know, put a value on that for themselves and that they're seeking out this more expensive, harder to get beer. Right. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've written about this some in the past. You know, you've seen in the past that, you know, some of the highest growth parts of craft were higher price point ones, you know, again, suggesting that the craft customers are a little less price sensitive and a little more willing to pay. But, you know, again, you know, put yourself in the shoes of an individual brand that has to raise price and the way you raise price, it filters through with distributor and retailer. And so, you know, six pack goes up, you know, X amount. You're now maybe priced against a set of brands you weren't before. And so while maybe a customer is willing to pay that price when they see your brand on the shelf versus a brand that before was, you know, priced above you and now is priced similarly, 
uh, you know, it just it, it leads to different decisions in their mind. So as a whole, am I worried about this dragging on on craft volume? You know, probably not that much. I don't think it's going to be a huge drag on overall volume. But I look at it as a category and individual brands are thinking about it in terms of their brand and where their brand sits on the shelf versus, you know, competitors above and below price. And if that moves you within that, you know, that can change the equation for individual brands. So, you know, I always try to keep in mind the difference between what's going to happen at the category level and what's going to happen to individual breweries and, and brands. And I think that could be different here where, yeah, craft customers are probably not going to, you know, seek out whole different categories because, you know, average craft pricing increases a little bit faster than it has in previous years. But they might shift what brands they buy within that, you know, kind of broader craft portfolio because of it. We've spent a lot of time talking about cans recently, but that, that's not the only packaging issue out there. The BA recently reported that the American glassmakers are not taking any new customers until 2023, which means new orders will have to be imported. For brewers out there looking for alternatives to cans, and now they possibly need an alternative to glass, how should they approach their mix? This is going to be different for every brewery again and, and your brands and what you've done previously and what you have packaging lines for. But, you know, I think they got to be flexible. You know, brewers need to be more open to different stuff. I think we're going to see a real hodgepodge of, of packaging strategies this year. You know, for brewers who can't, who can't get printed cans, you know, it's going to be a mix of, of different label types, you know, pressure sensitive or shrink. Um, and looking at, you know, if they have a bottling line, you know, bottling, you know, again, assuming you can get package. You know, one, one clarification there is, a bottling company not taking on new customers doesn't always equate to zero supply, right? There are still brokers. And so, you know, maybe they've just allocated those bottles through brokers. And so you can find them that way. But I think flexibility is going to be the name of the game. And we're going to see brewers who, who have to put things in packaging that looks different than the year before and have to really strategically think about their mix of brands and, and which packages need to be allocated to which brands to, to maximize sales. So it's just going to be a lot more intentionality and I think a lot more thought on on packaging in those sales than in a normal year. Right. Does a spot market exist for glass the way it does for cans? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I think a lot of the brokers, and I've talked to a lot of packaging brokers in, in recent months, you know, given some of the challenges, they're full stop, you know, a one-stop shop. So, you know, they'll, they'll sell you bottles as well as they'll sell you cans. You know, I think that's that, that's developed a little differently just because of the differences in the industry, but but certainly still exists in the same way that it does for cans. What are you hearing from producers with all of this and like what they're trying to do to combat this? Well, you know, I think they're trying to catch up. I mean, you know, to to give them some some credit, some slack. You know, nobody anticipated an event like COVID that so dramatically changed our our demand environment. You know, for cans, we had seen, you know, some level of increasing demand, and that's maybe accelerated in recent years as you know, water brands move into to cans. We're now seeing, you know, the canned cocktails and canned wines, but nobody expected this sudden massive additional jump with the channel shift that we saw from COVID. So, you know, I think a lot of them are, are doing, you know, what they can to catch up. You know, certainly we have more can manufacturing coming online than at any point in recent memory, but that can only happen so fast. And, and they only, you know, they can only swing so far, right? You know, they're all aware that this channel shift that led to the increased demand, part of it is swinging back. And so nobody wants to build 20 facilities only to have 10 of them sit idle in five years. And, you know, the can, the can makers are certainly in a tough spot as well because of this rapidly changing environment. You've mentioned the can makers and for Ball, they, they've got a number of facilities that are coming online. But one of the things that I took away from the Brewers Association collab hour with American Canning was that 
these new facilities, a lot of that volume is already spoken for, basically, when the shovel hits the ground. And so when you look at what Ball has done, a lot of this speaks to, you know, a publicly traded company looking for efficiency. And I can totally understand it from their standpoint that some of these smaller runs for craft brewers, it's not as efficient. They, they have to change the plates. They have to do do more work, basically, and make less margin in that time. So they, they want these longer runs. So when you look at that, you know, and even with more capacity coming that's already sold, I guess that leaves a lot of folks looking for solutions out there. And so, you know, when the stories about this first hit, there was a lot of talk about this is an existential crisis. It's it's a breaking point for a lot of breweries. Do you see this being that big of a moment or is that maybe a little bit of uh, hyperbole? I think it depends on the brewery and, you know, and what fallbacks they're able to find. I mean, if you're a brewery that is only in cans, so you can't, you know, pivot to bottle and has a brand and cost structure that was built entirely around printed cans, having that turned over with six weeks notice, you know, in many ways is existential, right? You, you suddenly need to find a whole new supply for your business. You need to, you know, see if you can make that cost structure work. You know, and then you need to, you know, plan out and, and keep going with this business and this new, you know, cost structure that suddenly exists again after you maybe even set price for 2022 already. So having conversations with those distributors and retailers and seeing if you can change stuff. I don't think you know this was an existential threat for the craft business overall, but for individual businesses, if you kind of talk with them and understand kind of how much the ground underneath them shifted with this. I think it was, you know, a real, real challenge for many of them, especially after a year where a lot of them had finances that didn't look as good as they could have because we just went through COVID. So it's not like, you know, we're dealing from a, a position of strength and healthier for, for every craft company. You know, our brewery is going to make it through it. Yeah, they're resilient. And I think, you know, most, the vast majority are. But that's not to say that for some, this won't be the, you know, the straw with many, many straws in the last couple of years that, you know, really breaks the camel's back. Similar to this, these changes seem to be impacting new customers a bit more because they can't necessarily meet these minimums. What impact does that have on the competition space? Like, is this going to make it harder to see these newer entrants be more successful than some of these bigger already existing places that already have these customer relationships and everything? Good question. You know, I think the group that this is affecting most, right, is the ones who have kind of medium scale. They don't have the scale to go to, you know, these big, long runs, um, but they're big enough that they were already buying from ball, you know, buying printed cans, which which already requires a certain amount of scale that your average group hub or tap room doesn't have. So, you know, for a new brewery getting in right now, they were going to be in, you know, sticker or shrink or, you know, they weren't going to be buying from ball or from crown directly already. So, so it doesn't shift too much. The one thing it does is it makes that kind of leap for them bigger. So, you know, for the brewery to go from one of, of local scale and selling cans out of the tap room to one that, you know, can compete on, on you know, clo- or closer to compete, let's be honest, on, you know, things like scale and, and price with, you know, bigger, wider, you know, distributed regional breweries, it makes that jump bigger. And people have talked about this before, you know, one, one visual I've heard is kind of, you know, the breweries, you, know, you got to swim from island to island at kind of various sizes. I think, you know, Lester Jones has used that metaphor in the past. And, and this is one of many things that I think is making that swim longer, that, you know, these jumps become bigger. You have to scale up larger when you're, when you're trying to make these jumps. And, 
I think it's going to be another thing that at least in the short term makes it makes it tougher for breweries to expand at, at the rate that we've seen. Some still will, right? There's always unicorns that can find a way to to really just, you know, grow in any environment. But it's just another thing that makes it harder to scale up and, and puts the breweries that were kind of on an island and now find themselves, you know, surrounded by water, you know, in a little bit more of a challenge. Do we know about how many breweries live in that middle ground on that island? You know, I think it's a couple hundred. You know, if you looked at the, the Brewers Association list, you know, it's somewhere in the top 50 down to kind of maybe even some large micros, depending on your packaging, you know, draft mix. So it's a couple hundred, but it's much larger in terms of, you know, share of craft industry. You know, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but just kind of ballparking it, you know, maybe a quarter of craft volume sits in this space since, you know, again, that long tail, um, lots of breweries, but not a ton of volume even collectively. And, and this is a space where, where people had started to scale a little bit more. So it's a, it's a little bit more of a big deal. One thing I'm curious about, you know, we're not even a month into 2022, but I'd love to get a general sense of your view of craft brewery health as we enter this year. Like, wh- where are we at? You know, I think it's a mix. Some breweries had their, you know, their finances in order kind of when COVID hits. And I think most of them have done reasonably well. The government support clearly helps, you know, PPP, RRF, for those who got it, clearly plugged a lot of the gaps for for many breweries. And that's one reason we haven't seen the closing rate spike. You know, if brewery health was was terrible, we'd have a much higher closing rate than we have now. That said, still, it's a, it's a challenging environment. You know, draft's still not back to where it was. And I think like many of the numbers, it's it's in between. It's probably in between where it was for many of those companies when the pandemic hit, but improving relative to last year and, and hopefully trending in the right direction for many of them as they've as they've figured out kind of this new environment, you know, albeit with changes in the supply chain, and started to kind of chart a path back to where they were. We were talking before we started recording, and and I think it's an interesting. I mean, of course, I think it's an interesting question. It's my question, but. Will will craft breweries be able to get back to 2019 levels, even if draft sales remain kind of saggy the way they've been? Because, you know, you did a a collab hour in December and had noted that restaurants are back to 2019. But one thing that's really lagging behind is draft sales. So if draft sales stay the way they are, what does 22 look like for craft breweries? I think if draft sales, you know, so draft sales to situate those who, who didn't listen to that are, are probably somewhere between minus 15 and minus 20 versus where they were in 2019, you know, seasonally adjusted. So, you know, that's much better than, you know, where we were, you know, 2020 full year was minus 50 drafts versus versus 2019. So, you know, if we can stay at, at that, say minus 15 for the full year, that might still be actually be improvement versus 21, where the first half of the year looks more like that minus 50 than um, you know, it looked like the late period of the year where we were in that minus 15 to minus 20. Can we get back to, to growth? I think it's going to be a challenge and we really require that kind of the act of resales really kind of pick up and, and return to the pace that they were at before. You know, package sales seem like they've settled. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to be at a level where they remain elevated versus 2019, you know, partially because of those draft levels, but below where they were in 20 when we saw that real boom. So if you have package number and distributed draft that are both not growing, you know, that puts a lot of weight on uh, and then at the brewery to get us back to where we were. And, you know, yeah, we're going to be several hundred, if not you know, maybe even a thousand by the end of the year breweries ahead of where we were when we hit the pandemic. Um, a lot of those doing at the brewery sales, but, but that's going to take a lot of collective growth. And I also say as a final thing, I might answer this question differently if we, we're talking about per brewery or as a category. I do think craft can get back on a comparable basis and all that to, to where we were in 2019, probably without draft 
recovering back to full levels this year. Can we get back at a brewery level? Probably not, because the difference there is we're going to get back, but with more breweries helping us get there. We saw last week that Marin Brewing is closing after 33 years, and they cited among the many reasons why was they hadn't received some of that restaurant revitalization funding. It, because restaurants have already reached those 2019 levels and breweries are beginning to recover a little bit, how likely do you think it is that there could be another round of that funding help? We're still hopeful. You know, there's still bipartisan support for this. You know, getting things done in, in D.C. right now is complicated, as you can see from many of the packages that are up there. And I'm sure our federal affairs manager, Katie Marisic, could wax more poetic than I on this. Um, but, you know, big, big spending you know, bills, big tax bills are, are tough to pass. So within the context that doing anything that costs a lot of money is is challenging. You know, we we think there is support for this and, and that it's a no brainer. You know, as I've said many times about breweries and I would also apply to restaurants, not being dead does not mean you're healthy. Restaurants being back where they were in terms of, of consumer spending levels doesn't mean they're all doing great. You know, many of them still have additional costs. Many of them have made up those sales with things like delivering to go, which you know may make them less money uh, than than in-person dining. You know, depending on their cost structure and other things. So we think this is still important. And, and the Marin Brewing, you know, I think is is a perfect illustration of of a business that you know that might be the decision between them closing and, and them, you know, being able to continue on and, and thrive in the future. So those are the kind of stories we're going to tell and, and hopefully policymakers will hear it. You mentioned it earlier. We've seen that lower than sort of expected brewery closure number. Is that something that you're sort of expecting to hold this year? Or what are we sort of looking at as we enter this year? I've been predicting that it's going to rise for two years. And those predictions have thankfully been wrong. I mean, this is another one that I keep wondering how something hasn't given, you know, that given we've we've seen these sales drops and all these challenges, you know, I think for one, it suggests that brewery financial health was perhaps better than many people expected going into COVID. And I do think the government support helped, you know, not everyone got RRF, but uh, more than a thousand breweries did and lots got PPP loans, you know, most of which, you know, hopefully were able to be forgiven. So I do think we've seen, you know, breweries receive, you know, helpful support. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, in the long run, you know, this is a competitive business. It's one where costs are rising. And, you know, for a lot of breweries, again, their hospitality businesses where that that landscape can change pretty quickly on them. So I may be less pessimistic than I have been the last couple of years where I've been predicting closings will rise just because we haven't seen them rise. But, you know, I'm not counting it out that we could see those closing numbers start to, to increase at some point in 22 if, you know, if we stay in the unsettled environment that we're in and we don't see additional support for for small businesses. Bart, I think, you know, you talking about closings led to one of our favorite industry adjacent terms here at Brewbound, which is that that breweries hermit crab into each other, meaning that one either goes out of business or graduates to a bigger space and another one moves into where they had been. And I know one way that you track like who's opening is TTB permits. So uh, do we see anything in the TTB permit numbers that indicate more breweries are going to open? That number had been slowing down for a while, right? Yeah, and, and what we see in both that number and in our database is that, that openings are declining, that we still have openings that outpace closings, but that, that openings have, have decreased over time and and that decrease is, has perhaps you know accelerated. So you know the number of closings was going down pretty consistently pre-COVID and has accelerated a little bit more now with COVID. The TCB teases me 
you know, right now, every day, they keep saying they're updating that page where they have the permits, but then they're updating some other part of the page, not the brewery number. So we don't have final 2021 numbers yet, but but through three quarters, it, it shows what we've been seeing, which is kind of, again, a, a decrease in the number of new permits. So, you know, we'll see how this plays out. I mean, putting myself in the the, the shoes of a, an entrepreneur thinking about what business to open, you know, a hospitality-focused business right now, I, I can just imagine a lot of the challenges. And that's not to say that some people aren't going to be ready for it and go out there and find, you know, new business models, particularly in places that are growing or, or maybe have, you know, less, you know, kind of a hangover from COVID. But you can see why, you know, given the competitiveness in the marketplace, the maturity of many markets, and the ongoing challenges around COVID, not to mention you know, things like rising interest rates to, to borrow money, why we might be in for a period where we have fewer brewery openings than we've had in recent years. I'm sorry, the TTB is taunting you. I, they keep saying the updated by date and the date goes up because they update something else on the page. And I get really excited and then they have, don't have the up, updated numbers. Perils of being an economist. Speaking of updated numbers, you're working on your benchmarking survey. Can you give us a little preview of what you've seen so far? Yeah, the official deadline is is today, but we'll still be crunching numbers for several weeks. So any breweries listening to this uh, a couple of days from now, certainly fill it out, breweriesassociation.org forward slash BIPS, Beer Industry Production Survey. And what we're seeing, I think, is pretty much what I was predicting in, in the, our year-end webinar that we gave. Um, right now, I lined it up, you know, we're over 10 million barrels comparable, you know, year over year submitted. And, and it was sitting at plus seven, which I think is what I had predicted for the full year. That's without kind of new breweries, but also not closings. And the expectation, there is some survey bias, right? The people who rush to give us their numbers typically have slightly better numbers than the people who uh, we have to drag them out of a little bit more. But, you know, I think what we're seeing is is very much what I predicted, a bounce back from the lows of, of 2020, but not a full bounce back. We're not going to get back to where we were in 2019 in the 2021 craft numbers, but things are on the improvements. And and one other stat that I, I shared at HGA is when you look at the long tail and you look at all the numbers, 60% of breweries are back to where they were in 2019. So we are seeing, you know, while the total category is not back, many breweries have recovered to their 2019 volume levels. Doesn't mean they've recovered to the revenue or profit levels, given that, you know, shifting from uh, draft in the tap room to package, you know, might not uh, look as good on the balance sheet. But breweries are getting back, at least in volume terms. I know it's funny you mentioned how people who you know are up and they're really proud of their numbers. They're happy to tell you right away. One thing that I've noticed in spending as much time with those numbers as I have is that, you know, when people were, you know, were either on an upward trend or they're really happy with the year, they will give you every single barrel, like 19,574. And then if they were down, then they are like, yeah, we did 18,400. Just the thing that I notice. Everyone approaches that differently. I've definitely d- done this enough years. I, I also think like you and kind of the psychology of the survey and, you know, try to interpret what people are thinking. But, you know, lots of interesting things. And, you know, we try to, one, one thing I always try to do is make it as easy and comfortable to report the number, whether you were up, whether you're down. I'm very clear. I've done this on your podcast and others before to never imply that do not publish means a down year. People do not publish for many reasons. Um, and do that precisely because I don't want that there to be a stigma about reporting your numbers, but but not having them published. So we try to avoid that as much as possible. If you have a down year, we need those numbers just as much. And, and the people who are having good years, I mean, that helps them see their number of perspective and it helps you as uh, having a down year, you know, see it in perspective of everybody who has down years reports it. So I was pleased last year that we got such a good response rate. I was a little worried about this in a year where it was obviously going to be tough. So hopefully this year as people recover, they'll They'll be more excited to give us their good numbers, but they'll also give us numbers they didn't recover quite as quickly as everyone else. 
So I just want to clarify one thing that you said that, because I find that really interesting. If you see a DNP in the, in the book, it doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't tell you what they have. They just asked you not to publish them to show everybody else, correct? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we get many numbers that are, you know, they, they give us the number, but they say we don't want to publish it. There can be a bunch of reasons for that. You know, we're changing systems or, you know, you get breweries who, you know, they, they, they have different ownership and they want a year to kind of see how the numbers are received before, you know, they, they include theirs in the mix. So I'm very clear and open and never pressure a brewery to publish. I want to get all the numbers. I want to publish as many as possible, but, uh, but I just want to get all the numbers. That makes a lot of sense. So one thing that's been in conversation lately is, you know, the definition that the BA uses to define who's a craft brewer. And and I will totally admit that I had gotten this wrong in our story about uh, Monster Acquiring Canarchy because I just, you know, I used to work at a, at a member brewery and I know that definition and its iterations used to know it forwards and backwards. So you know, obviously the the three main buckets here that members need to be small. So their production needs to be 6 million barrels or fewer. They need to be a brewer, meaning they have a TTB brewer's notice and they make beer and then they need to be independent. So I'm going to read off the website. So it says less than 25% of the craft brewery is owned or controlled or equivalent economic interest by a beverage alcohol industry member that is not a craft brewer. So Monster's not a beverage alcohol industry member. I would have thought that would take them out of the set here, but that's clearly not the case. So, I mean, what happens if we see another large CPG company acquire a craft brewer? What will happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, as the definition is written, you know, a CPG company acquiring a, a craft brewer doesn't doesn't change their stats because they're not a beverage alcohol industry member. I will say, you know, I mean, the definition has evolved multiple times and and evolves because the industry changes. You know, if you told the people who were writing the first craft brewer definition, you know, many years ago that a company like Monster and you know, the Coke has a stake in would be interested in these tiny little microbreweries, the craft brewing space in general, you know, they would have been flabbergasted. So I think the, the definition has evolved precisely because the industry changes and, you know, who who the industry collectively, I mean, the Brewers Association is the collective aggregation of the industry. That's, you know, our board of directors is made up of, of small breweries. Who the industry collectively, you know, views as a, as a craft brewer changes. That changed over time with, with ingredients. It changed over time with, you know, making other beverage alcohol products, which used to be a part and, and removed as, as companies have become beverage companies. And everyone was doing that. So collectively, that kind of made sense. And, and we'll see, you know, this is, this is, these are above my pay grade. You know, my, my job is to, you know, read the rules and, and interpret. I'm an umpire. I'm not a baseball owner who, you know, who, who makes the rules of the game. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how that evolves going forward. And if that's a question the, the board is interested in, in visiting. Cool. So the headline here is that, that the Canarchy brands stay within the fold, as do Sweetwater, Green Flash, and Alpine, which have all been acquired over the last year plus by uh, Afria and now Tilray, which is a large cannabis company. And I, I wanted to clarify that one just for my own edification. No, we'll see. I mean, you know, I think the definition speaks to kind of who is and who isn't a craft brewer, as well as things like, you know, market advantage, which, you know, I mean, this was something too, and, you know, I know it was considered as kind of capital came into the space, you know, how much is suddenly having, you know, a lot of capital behind you, you know, convey market advantage. And, you know, I mean, there's shades of gray here, right? Some of these things certainly do, but they don't maybe help as much as having a network of breweries and you know, the things that like large brewers bring to the table. So, you know, where another CBG or beverage company fits is, you know, is something that the BA board of directors, I'm sure will will think through and talk through and decide kind of where those lines are drawn and you know, which, which colors are which. Well, until they get there, uh, we'll look forward to possibly seeing you at an industry event 
coming up. And if not, we'll likely see you in, well, we'll definitely see you in Minneapolis, barring like whatever, you know, ninth wave or 20th wave of COVID we'll be in at that point. Craft Brewers Conference registration is open. Hope hope to see everyone there. It's, you know, uh, one of the things I've missed most in the last couple of years is seeing industry peers in person. So uh, hope to to see all three of you and, and many listeners of this podcast uh, over a beer in Minneapolis, if not sooner. Definitely. Uh, we'll drink beer with olives. I think that's the thing they do, right? Mm, I don't know. That's uh, I'm an Iowan, so we you know we try to steer away from uh, Minnesota traditions. I am too, Bart. So you know we got that in common. Ooh, are they like your enemy? Every Midwest state has a healthy rivalry with every other Midwest state. Nice. Yes, it's it's blood feuds all around. So in, even in state, it's a blood feud between uh, Iowa State and Iowa. But the most polite blood feuds, right? Mm, Iowa State and Iowa, not not so much. Maybe with the other <laughs> states. <laughs> with that, we'll say that's our show for this week. Thanks to our one-man audio team, Joe. Please like, rate, review, and turn on that bell so you get notifications when the Brewbound podcast comes out. Until next week, uh, we will thank you for listening and see you then. 